So this is episode 24 of the Treatment Room Secrets podcast, um, brought to you by NAT Global Campus. Um, and I'm hoping this will be maybe the easiest podcast I had to do because I haven't done a podcast yet with a soccer player, former soccer player. Um, so this should be easy. So I have many questions to ask you and also from, you know, um, the other side of the spectrum of gender. Um, I never really got to, you know, I've spoken to friends of mine, people that I've played with, but never a female soccer player, never got to interview a female soccer player. Um, so I do have many, many questions. Um, so I'm sitting here with Erica, is it Sutter? Suter. Suter. I have a problem with the U's um, okay. when it comes with it because also now we're in, uh, we're in Lutz, Florida, yes. right? Just outside Tampa. Um, and to me, I would go with uh, Lutz. That's how I read it. Uh, but it's Lutz. So Erica Sutter, um, really nice to be Suter. here. Suter. See, I'm, I'm mixing up the U's again. <laughs> so Erica Suter, really nice to be here with you. Um, we spent a day together yesterday. Um, we had a good time. We recorded some nice content. Um, and I've been following you for a while on social media. Um, and I think you do something very interesting. Um, it's a very, you know, you're in a niche of working with female athletes um, in a way that's maybe some coaches, some um, some people prefer maybe to avoid speaking about certain things and challenging certain aspects of training and of the game. Um, so I think it's very interesting what you do. So I'm super happy to be here with you. And the first thing I want to ask you is when did you start playing soccer? Oh my gosh. Uh, I started at, I think it was age six. But it was actually against my will. I didn't want to go. Parents? And Yep. But the funny thing is, is like, you know, at that age, your parents kind of pick the sport for you because you don't know what's going on. And I remember this vividly. And my mom and dad said to me, you're going to soccer practice. And we got in the car and I cried the whole way there and was throwing a tantrum and my parents dropped me off at the field I met my coach and practiced for an hour and then I got back in the car and the first thing I said to my parents was when do I get to do that again <laughs> so you liked it I loved it Which and is- my mom it's like we always joke moms know best and they really do mm-hmm. and I always tell her I'm so glad that you made that decision for me and you pushed me to try something. And I was also doing like ballet at the time too and didn't really like it. And my parents wanted me to try a different sport and I'm so glad they, they took me to practice. And even though I was crying, I ended up falling in love with it after that first practice. Why do you think you hated, did you say hated ballet? I didn't like the outfits. The outfits. <laughs> And um, there was like makeup and we were wearing like lipstick at that age. And I remember it was super traumatizing. <laughs> so I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I think the difference was too with soccer. I just felt very free, like running around and chasing a ball. And I love that part of it. And yeah, I just, I fell in love with it so young, but I still played other sports like lacrosse and basketball played with my brother and his friends like flag football and baseball so I was serious about soccer but I was still like dabbling in other things when I was really young and did you feel good in soccer did you feel like oh yeah yeah did you feel in comparison to the players that were around you it just yeah it just felt like second nature 
to me. Although I did have a crazy experience when I was young. I scored my first goal, but it was an own goal. I think I was like age seven or eight and I was dribbling the wrong direction Mm -hmm. and I scored and I was like so excited, but like no one was cheering (laughs) and I was like, oh, I scored on my own goal. (laughs) So there's been times where, you know, I've made mistakes, but I stuck with it and continued to learn the game and had fun with it all through childhood and didn't get serious till I was 13, like the travel system. Yeah. 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 Um, and so you were always active playing, participating in different sports, uh, which mm-hmm. is which is fun. Um, do you think that helped you maybe um, understanding other sports, um, understanding your body ba- better by making different types of movements? Um, like yesterday, I got the chance to um, to pitch a baseball. Am I, am I saying the am I saying it right? Did I pitch yeah. a baseball? <laughs> oh, I tried to pitch a baseball. Um, and it's just so interesting that, you know, you when trying to do something for the first time that you just never done that movement before, um, it just feels so foreign. Um, so I bet if I would have played baseball for fun as a kid, it would not feel so foreign yesterday when I showed up at the, um, at the baseball uh, center or the, the pitch um, in order to pitch that baseball trying to. Um, so like now you said you, you don't only work with soccer players, you work with other types of athletes. Um, does that help you just having some experience doing these different types of movements in these other sports? Yes. Well, so from ages zero to 12, that's your cognitive window. So that's when you can learn the most motor skills and they stick the most. And when I was young, I played all these sports and it only enhanced my skills in soccer because something like playing pickup basketball, for example, it was in like a much smaller space than soccer, but it helped me in soccer have a better first touch and think two steps ahead of people. So it really helped my soccer IQ. Um, Things also like tackle football and wrestling with my brother and his friends when we were so young it helped me be aggressive in soccer and learn how to shield my body and have body awareness. And even lacrosse, having hand-eye coordination and having my head up more helped me have my head up more in soccer. And I think nowadays a lot of parents and even players are under the impression to get better at a single sport. You just have to do more of that sport. When in reality, you have to develop this foundation of motor skills and athleticism, and it's only going to add to that sport. So everyone's kind of doing the opposite now of what we used to do back in the 90s. Do you think about these anecdotal lessons that you learned when you were very young? I'm asking because um, you're obviously you're working with young athletes all the time, so I'm 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 assuming you from time to time want to impart some wisdom on them. So do you think about these lessons that you learned when you were their age or even younger? Absolutely. You know, I I try to tell parents, especially of the young ones I work with, and the youngest I usually work with is nine or ten, and that's even pushing it sometime with the nine year olds. I really like to encourage more like free play with like 
your family in the backyard or just sampling other things. But when I work with this age group, I reinforce to parents why we do what we do in sessions. We don't have a soccer ball. We don't do very structured or serious training. We're doing a variety of games that develop balance, coordination, body awareness. And a lot of the sessions look like games from the 90s. So we're playing like capture the flag and dodgeball and we're doing tug of war this summer to build up our body strength and be competitive. And, you know, I think parents sometimes get confused. Well, why am I sending my daughter to do this? But then when you talk about the science behind it and also the mental break these young ones need from their single sport, they get it. Um, but of course, not all parents do, and they'll send their elementary schooler to a soccer skills trainer down the road, and they're getting more of these repetitive movements, and that can lead to overuse, and then eventually seeing the sport as an obligation, and by the time they get into high school, they quit. And I think the stat now is most kids quit their sport by age 13, and it's around like 60 to 70% of kids do that who were specializing. So two things I want to touch on that. One is when kids are maybe forced to more orthodox training sessions at a very young age, do you think that it limits their potential of creativity in that sport? Absolutely. Because they're just not allowed to express whatever comes naturally with, with the soccer ball, right? When you were sent to age six, you might have looked bad from the outside, but mm-hmm. you're at least maybe expressing whatever comes naturally to you when someone plays the soccer ball. Um, but when you're forced at age six, seven, eight to stop the ball, pass the ball, run to the cone, you must be like uh, you're just you know, limiting yourself, putting yourself in this uh, prison of whatever the coach says I must do. Um, yeah. Yeah, so is that like, oh my have, you, have you seen it yeah. firsthand as well? This opens a whole can of worms. <laughs> so, let's, let's yeah, worms. let's, yeah, we'll get into this. So, when kids at that age are constantly being told what to do or the drills are too predictable, they don't know how to think, how to be creative, how to problem solve, even how to regulate their emotions. So, if you did you have recess when you were young? Okay. Yeah, we all did. I mean, it seems like it's kind of going away now, but, um, so at recess, there were times when we had to set up our own games and then, you know, do the thing where we had like team captains and we picked our teams and then we would get frustrated and we got into arguments, but we learned how to regulate and handle our emotions ourselves. And that's really important for the development of a child. And that's why I get so frustrated. Like I'm all about the physical development and building athleticism, but the scarier thing for me is the the lack of cognitive cognitive development that's happening now in kids. And there's some really interesting research. I think it's Dr. John Rady. He wrote the book Spark and It's all about how play, free play with no rules, no structure, um, not adult-led play, how it helps kids regulate emotions. And there was one study he brought up that um, it was in serial killers. And the common theme with serial killers later in life, they had a childhood void of play. And I thought that was alarming. Yeah. But it it makes a lot of sense because if you don't have that emotional regulation or 
you learn how to deal with your senses and perceive things and handle aggression, then that's a big problem later in life that could manifest. Um, you know, it might not always get that serious, but it was pretty terrifying to read that in the research. And you also find all these like, you know, amazing uh, soccer players that would become professional, all these guys from maybe Latin American countries, from Brazil, um, that they literally say until the age of 15, 16, they weren't playing anywhere. They were just doing whatever they wanted on the streets. And, yep. what you know, if they had to play with a can or play with a bottle or play with a tennis ball, like whatever it is they played. So they were always being creative, always problem solving. So then almost when you're at this structured environment, things in to some degree could seem even easier um, to problem solve. Um, and I always felt that. I always felt when I, at a young age, um, I always felt like it was a bit silly what we were doing, um, you know, pretending to be professional adults as, um, you know, professional players as mm -hmm. six, seven, eight-year-olds, um, which I think kills the spirit of many, of many players. They just don't want to be part of it. Um, but, but firsthand, have you seen that? Even today with like, I don't know, like younger players that you work with or siblings of younger players? I, I see it everywhere. I see specialization being pushed. I see kids moving a lot less. Playgrounds are empty. They used to be packed. Yeah. <laughs> um, even with social media, I see really young kids with Instagram accounts. They're, most of them are parent-run but it's just this constant, like, look at my seven-year-old, like, dominating mm -hmm. U7 soccer. And they're doing, like, professional photo shoots and, like, headshots. And I'm like, first of all, these kids are growing up way too fast. That's, yeah. that's another rabbit hole. But, yeah, I see it all the time. I've um, had girls quit by the time they reach high school because this was pushed on them too young. And um, I had one girl who her dad was a coach and – he pushed soccer on her since elementary school and he wanted her to play in college. It was more of his dream than hers, but she just kind of went through the motions to, to please him. So she goes through the whole system and by age 18, she commits to play division one. Then the summer before she leaves for division one freshman year, she says to her dad, I don't want to play soccer in college. She was just sick of it at that point. And, um, you know, it's a very realistic thing that's happening is we're just putting so much pressure on these kids to just do one sport and put their identity in it and not do other things. And it's dangerous. And realistically, if, you know, a kid does make it far in college and pro, they're still going to end their career one day in that sport. So you yeah. have to have identity in other things and, have other hobbies <laughs> yeah and do you like so w what are certain things maybe that you will emphasize with your athletes um like w will you talk to them about these things oh 100 yeah. yeah um so you, so you, it's more the parents um mm. because like a 10 year old's not really making decisions for themselves it's the parents and sometimes the parents really push back with me but the the funny thing is I'll I'll speak my piece to parents and they won't listen for like a season and then something happens like an overuse injury or the girl is mentally exhausted and then they come back to me and they're like whoa like we should have listened and that happens a lot 
so so but so do you try um with or maybe older players that you can communicate with more mm-hmm. um or maybe even players where it's a bit more difficult to communicate with their um with them with the parents directly um do you try and communicate with the players and just take it from a place to, to stre- stretching out the package you give them of you know performance speed training uh, strength training but also to talk about these other elements of the game the psychology of the game the emotions behind the game that type of thing yeah my my older girls with them it's important to teach them to advocate for themselves so if they're not being given an off season or their coach is making them do too much then they stand up for themselves and they say hey when are we going to have time for recovery for strength speed and conditioning and they're they're really good about standing up to that and I think what's been good about that is we've had objective data Uh, we use like GPS tracking with the older girls and they kind of have ammunition now Mm. to take to the coaches and the parents do too and be like hey it's probably not good we ran 20 miles this week when we've never prepared for that level of load so it's just things like that just getting girls to stand up and take care of their bodies and know when to listen to their body and to know when to recover. What is your goal um, in your business, you know, working with these athletes? What is it your, why did you start this? You know, what was your goal to begin with? Is it the same now? And like, where does this passion come from? Um, I know that you played and I want to also, I will dive in and ask you about specifically your playing career. Um, I'm just wondering like, you know, when, when a girl walks through the door, what are you trying to aim with that individual athlete? So it used to be about getting them strong and fast and conditioned for sport. But now I'm just like, that's like the bare minimum of my job. Like that's just me doing my job mm. <laughs> at this point. Um, because and, by, as, if they show up, they probably will be. Yeah, exactly. It's like I should be doing that anyway. <laughs> um, so now the, the greater goal is to make sure that they can take this into life after sport. So um, kind of what we said about not putting your identity in just soccer and being able to take care of yourself and be healthy and be passionate about strength training for life because there's so many other benefits than just running fast on a soccer field. Um, So that's my goal now. And, you know, I, I saw in my own career that this stuff kept me healthy. It made me a better soccer player. But I find now as a retired athlete that I feel better, more vibrant, more sharp than when I was a college All-American. And that's because I've kept performance training for life. And I think that's that's important to these girls. And you shouldn't stop when you're done. Do they understand that message? Because I'm thinking about yeah. myself. If you said that to me when I was 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, I would have no idea what you're even talking about. Because, you know, yeah. in my mind, you put the blinds on and... You're just thinking about the next game, the next season, and that's it. Well, they're teenagers, so who knows if they understand it. But, um, you know, I don't think it's a waste of time to plant the seed. Um, You know, even with me personally, like my nutrition was awful as a teenager. It was awful in college. Um, My my sleep was terrible. Like, um, but sometimes you have to come to that on your own. But there are people in your life who do plant those seeds 
And eventually it clicks, whether it's when you're in your mid twenties or now when I'm in my thirties and that's worth something. And I think for the teenage girl, even the middle school girl to start having these conversations and teaching about good nutrition and recovery and sleep because they're not learning it in school. (laughs) So it's like, well, if I can at least expose them to that, then that's going to be helpful. Who planted those seeds for you? My mom, definitely. Um, You know, my family was always very active and healthy. And my mom like worked out with me a lot. And I think a lot of these behaviors are also learned um, by having good role models. And that's what I'm trying to be to the girls. Um, My uh, soccer trainer when I was young, Laurie Shoy, she played at UNC. Uh, She was supposed to be better than Mia Hamm, but she got a hamstring strain and couldn't get to that but um, she planted those seeds in me as well and then I think just in college just it was like junior year when I was realizing that my energy wasn't the best it could have been and that's when I started to research into nutrition and learn more but I had to kind of come to it on my own so what did you feel well, not well rested because we were all going out and partying like rock stars yeah. and then eating like fried food. And, <laughs> and of course, you know, you don't want to like restrict, but you don't want to like do stuff in excess. But, um, you yeah. know, I started to fuel with more of like whole foods and all the macros and my junior and senior year was when there was a shift and I never really felt flat, but freshman, and sophomore year, there were days when I was like, oh, I don't think I... I prepared well. <laughs> How was that transition for you, let's say, from um, from high school age to college level-wise, athleticism? Um, were you immediately able to keep up? and You felt like you were okay? Yeah, definitely. Um, and it took a lot of work, but college soccer for me was the pretty much the pinnacle of it all. And I wanted to go into college and play I wanted to start you know I wanted to contribute and be an impact player so that summer leading up I still did my strength and conditioning even I had been doing it all through high school so just having that underneath my belt gave me good preparation but um, I talked about this in the course playing with division one men's players to gain confidence Um, so that summer I decided to get into a more challenging environment than what I was about to get into. So I was like, all right, I probably should play pickup soccer twice a week with these men's players who are three years older than me because they'll teach me to play quicker, to be more creative, to be stronger. And once I get to preseason with the ladies, I'm going to feel like it's the easiest thing I've done. That's It's probably <laughs> the best training out there no to play with better stronger quicker players 100 percent. even if it's extremely frustrating because yeah. I, rem- I remember even as, as a kid you know when you're 11 and you play with 12 year olds it feels like they're you know a decade older than you and a decade wiser than you and quicker than you um but even if you perform really badly in those situations when you go back to your friends group to your team you feel a lot better um, yeah. and, and you, it's like something you actually feel right every single time. Yeah. It's crazy because I get asked about confidence a lot and I think people believe confidence is feeling 
good. Mm. Like, yeah. like positive affirmations, self-talk, but like that's the icing on the cake. It's yeah. not going to make you unshakably confident. Yeah. Confidence comes from getting into an environment where you are challenged and learning how to overcome that. And did it suck playing with men the first time? Was it really hard? Was I exhausted? Yeah. But each pickup game I played, I learned something new to one-up them and get better. Or they taught me a new move and I tried to work on it on my own. Or I tried it in the pickup game. And that's another thing with like skill confidence and, you know, being confident with like 1v1s. No like rehearsed skills training where you're like going against a cone a hundred reps, which is really common in soccer. Now that's not going to help you have tenacity in a one-on-one in a game. What was the uh, biggest thing you felt playing with, um, with boys, guys that was maybe like a a challenge? Is it it the the speed? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was very, fast paced and it was more like one and two touch and your movement off the ball was just nonstop. So you had to be like three steps ahead thinking. (laughs) Um, So it was, it was amazing. And I had never been exposed to that. I was on the best club team in Maryland at the time. And like the trainings were really intense. Don't get me wrong. But um, what's the club? Bethesda. Yeah. <laughs> cool. And and high level girls training. I mean the girls side is a powerhouse, but nothing beats playing with better players who are 3 years older than you. Yeah. Um I obviously, you know, I can't um exactly relate um because I am a guy. Um but I do remember like playing with adults for the first time and it f- it feels like they just they know more, they're, 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 they're wiser, they're quicker to react. Um, and I felt like even on small-sided pickup games with adults, you know, every time, it doesn't matter how hard I shot the ball, how accurately I shot the ball, the goalie like was always just able to catch the ball and keep <laughs> playing. And I remember that feeling and I still get nightmares, you know, from it sometimes. And it's <laughs> so frustrating, so frustrating. Um, I have this theory that you mentioned confidence. I have this theory that on... You know, I can only speak to soccer because it's my only first-hand experience in sports. But I have this theory that if you are able to crack um, that, uh, you know, whatever confidence means, and I think you put it in a very nice way, um, if you're able to actually be confident and step on the field, you might be like a 50% better player mm-hmm. automatically. Um, because, you know, I've played with players that are, you know... W- one portion of the season where they you can see that they're just alive and confident and they play phenomenally like incredible soccer and then maybe a few months later maybe you know maybe it's the coach's fault for putting their confidence down maybe their parents put their confidence down maybe their girlfriend put their confidence down but whatever it is maybe they're coming back from an injury and they lost their confidence based as based on that recovery maybe they didn't feel confident in whatever their hamstring the performance just goes um but even simple things like you know they still know how to shoot they still know how to make a pass they still know how to make a cross they still know how to defend someone but things just don't work out and i felt that too it's like you you, like you can actually like forget to do 
really simple things um, mm. when you lose confidence. And when you have confidence, the other side of the spectrum, you don't need, even need to think about the actions that you're taking on the field, you know? Um, yeah, I feel like it comes naturally for some players too. Like, the, you the know, you confidence part. Yeah, or? like you see a player and you're just like, they just got it. And I think there's also genetics involved. And, and a lot of people don't talk about genetics. Like mm. some people are just genetically gifted, like Messi. And he's just going to be confident because he's just good. <laughs> and he's passionate too. I think yeah. passion's a part of confidence as well. And um, yeah, you can work on confidence and train it, but there's also like a natural side of it too that no one's talking about. So what do you mean by passion when it comes to confidence? Just having a love for the game. And even when you mess up, just still being tenacious. Um, I found that the most confident girls love the game the most. And they don't get down on themselves when they make a mistake or they're in a playing rut. They just yeah. like keep plugging away at it and they don't give up. And some players just kind of crumble when that happens. Did you have um, good coaches in your development as a player? I did. Good people that guided you, yeah? I was very lucky. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you must hear horrible stories from yeah. if you have um, a you know, selection of athletes and they each have their own coach or coaches. Uh, you must hear some horrible stories. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was it, lucky, you know. I think it's, it's a problem because, you know, a lot of the power that um, on the really like confidence. So like a 14-year-old's a girl, girl's confidence in life could rely on her coach. Mm -hmm. Or the parents. And, I, you know, I've had situations where uh, parents will hire me to help with confidence. But then at the same time, I'll like go to watch the girl play. I, I go out to watch games sometimes and I hear the parents bringing her down on the sideline. And I'm like, well, how are you expecting me to offset what you're doing and improve her confidence when you're constantly getting on her about things and nagging her and berating her? So adults really influence that. And, and the coaches too. I've heard some really bad coaching stories and there's just a lack of encouragement for for girls and they're, they're just constantly being brought down by their coaches too and I never had that as a player um, my coaches were strict but it wasn't like you know you suck or you need to do this like it was more like hey you made a mistake I'm gonna coach you how to fix it that's impressive I know. Well, I mean, that's coaching, right? Yeah, like, I know. It's like, <laughs> but it's like, it, and then I, you know, I see coaches where players make mistakes or the team loses and their default is, okay, we're going to condition at the next practice and run them when we really could be spending our time going over where the breakdown was and going over tactics. It's, it's just like, it, it blows my mind. And these are like, qualified like licensed people doing this yeah whereas um <laughs> you know since you started playing a lot has happened in the u.s uh, specifically around soccer um so yeah w w what do you feel now when it comes to soccer that you ha did not feel then um i think a lot of people focus mainly on the positives that it's it's growing in numbers it's growing in international awareness of you know what the hell is going on in soccer in the US um, where does it come to you because you've been involved in soccer now for a couple decades 
So the the positives I want to touch on first. So there is more exposure and growth on the girl side, which is great. And there's really high level leagues for girls. Um, girls are getting more access to performance coaches at soccer clubs. And it's an amazing thing, especially with performance and injury reduction. So we've come a really long way there. Um, and there's more opportunity to play college soccer for girls. But... I think the issue is, is there more opportunity to play college soccer for girls in yeah. what sense though? There's multiple divisions. Mm. Um, there's multiple pathways. You don't have to be on the best team in the state to play for a good school. A lot of division one schools will come out and watch you or you can submit highlight reels or you can go to them. So there's plenty of opportunities or you can play with a local school if you don't want to travel and spend the money. Yeah. And there's a lot of good local schools in your area. There's at least one state school, one D1, D2, D3, and then JUCO. So there's plenty of opportunity. Um, and that's actually increased. So that's, uh, that's a really good thing. But I think a lot of people are under the impression for that stuff. You have to be on the highest level team and like get exposure. But I've seen girls be on like the fifth best team in the state and still play at their dream school. That's, um, that's, it's great. Uh, first of all, yep. and yeah, no, it is, it really is. Um, and, but in terms of, um, even uh, you know and I'll maybe connect this to your career but the is there more opportunity now in terms of a professional route for female soccer players in the US like is there more of a realistic dream to aim for yeah i would say in the US and overseas i know um a girl who just graduated from Johns Hopkins playing professionally in Iceland um, I know a few girls who are in England or Germany playing. And then here we have the the Women's Pro League, the uh, NWSL. And they just recently added a new team, Angel City, um, which Alex Morgan is on now. And is that in L.A.? I th yeah, it's in L.A. And, um, you know, I look at the games and there's a lot of fans there. I mean, it's it's really growing and they're doing a good job of of marketing it and really building up the league. So I think there's more opportunity in that sense. And obviously the, the women's national team is still one of the best in the world. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity. And then as far as um, female coaches, they're, they're pushing women to get hired. Um, a lot of colleges, a lot of pro clubs, even youth clubs. They're like, look, we, we need women. Like we want to hire at least like five of them. So, um, I think there absolutely is more opportunity. Of course, people will say, oh, well there's, you know, women still have it hard. I, I actually think they have it easier now. Oh, interesting. Hot take. Yeah. We'll you, get controversial with it. Yeah. Can you expand <laughs> on that? Um, well, well, first of all, there's not a lot of women in coaching, but the ones who are get to a, a really high level. And, you know, of course, there's some clubs where there might be an imbalance of men and women, but we can't narrow it down to, oh, well, they just don't want women. It could be, well, who applied for the job? How many applicants were there? So I, I don't want to say, like, it was because people are denying women, yeah. but there's a lot of women who do have really high level positions um, at United Soccer, the USL, um, D1 colleges. 
Um, it's, it's way better than it was 10 years ago. And for me, I feel like I actually get more opportunities and more jobs and more collaborations because I'm a woman coaching female athletes. That's and I'm aware of that and I'm grateful for it. Yeah. Um, I have nothing to complain about in that sense, but, um, which, yeah. which, which is great. Um, and tell me, did you ever have the, uh, the thought or desire or passion to uh, be a team coach? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> well, and that's another thing people won't talk about is like, I personally don't desire that because of the life. Um, I've been asked about like working for a college team or college strength and conditioning or in the pros. And it's just too stressful for me. Like I want to be home with my family, but still like balance work and life. Um, so that's not worth it for so me. Maybe for those who don't this know, this is a very like, controversial well, no, take. <laughs> yeah. no, And, and I, and, like, I, and I've seen it, um, you know, and looking at, even when I played the assistant coaches, um, they worked 18 hour days sometimes it's crazy um, and traveling all the time, you know, the travel. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really nonstop and you, and, and it's, and it's, it was also difficult to progress, you know, without many years under your belt, very difficult. And even when you do get a, an opportunity, finally, you know, it's, uh, it can slip out of your hands in, in a moment, you know, you might you have a bad season, a, b a bad few games, yeah. um, the players don't like you, you know, um, it could end instantly, the athletic director mm -hmm. switches, and they bring in a new uh, coach. So it's it's very, uh, it's very, uh, I don't think it's controversial at all. I think it's even um, it's a lot of turnover, a it's, lot of turnover. Yeah, a lot yeah, of turnover. It's, it's, it's not guaranteed. At all. And um, not everyone can hang and handle that environment. And that's yeah. okay. Like, But, but is it something yeah. you at least like, thought about? and like, Because um, yeah. if, if, if the life was maybe more balanced um, and you could do it, would you like to be the head of a team, a coach of a team? Not at that level. I like kids better. So yeah. I'd still do the same thing. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, that's not to say I'm just like chilling all day. I have a lot to do. Like yeah. I'm still really busy, but it's the travel that would get me and that stress. And I actually had a friend, I won't mention her name, but she's worked for um, two of the women's pro teams in the past five years. Then she moved to England to work for another team. Then she like came back over here to work for another team. So she's just bopped around for the past five years. And she told me that she reached a, a breaking point and she had to go to the hospital um, due to overstress and panic attacks. And I was like, dang, like, that's not, uh, that's not an easy life. Like it's very real. Um, I've heard other coaches go through that and it's like, look, like not all of us are willing to pay that price. And I, at that level, you have to be willing to do all that. Well, and I don't think they're going to cut back on the schedule or focus on the care of coaches just because the market dictates how that all goes. So right. What, but what do you think, um, like they're paying a price for what? What is it people are looking for when they become, a, is it the is it the, the winning? Is it the addiction to wanting to win? Um, is it the Man. glory of winning trophies? I don't know. I, you know, at, at that level, it's, it's tough to say. Like I, I know some, some people in that space that truly want to impact the game but then I, I don't know if that would be the same for everyone. Um, I'm sure there's some people that, 
you know, want the wins or the championships or to say they took a team to the the EPL final or whatnot. But um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to tell, but it is a, it's a huge sacrifice. Yeah. And I wasn't willing to, to do that. Like my sacrifice is more like my day to day and what I do for the kids. Like I'm willing to do that, um, but I'm not willing to do all the travel and deal with management and the pros and all that. <laughs> yeah, and you also you get to work with athletes on an individual basis and forming relationships with them individually rather yeah. than managing a team of relationships. It's to- more autonomy too, like with your with your strength programming. And I think when you work at a high level, when you're in like college, you have to deal with like the team coach or the athletic director saying, oh, well, we don't want like split squats in their program or they shouldn't be doing speed work in season. And you're constantly micromanaged and you're told what to do in your job, even though the science says you should do that stuff, but no one cares about you or the science. Um, But in the youth space, you're like given more freedom to write your programs and to not deal with people barking at you and being like, well, you can't include this exercise. Like Like we said about the young players, like you are now as a strength and conditioning coach, you get to express yourself as a coach without the limitations of a head coach, a university, an organization limiting you to what you can do with your athletes. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And I've um, coming back to my friend who worked for the women's pro teams. There was a point when uh, management was telling her that they couldn't strength train in season at all. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Like, do you want your players to stay healthy and maintain and focus on recovery? But management didn't care. They're just like, we just want soccer practice. So it's like stuff like that where it's like, man, like you can't really leave an impact. And you don't get to see your athletes as much too if they're not training with you in season. So you can't build relationships either. Even looking at the way you work with your athletes, the current programs that you um, impose on them, um, and that you said you practice yourself, right? You yes. practice what you um, yeah, prescribe to your athletes, yeah. which, is, which is awesome to hear. I try. <laughs> uh, which is awesome to hear. Um, have, have you seen what you prescribe to your athletes and to yourself? Have you seen that evolve even over the last 18 months, couple of years? I've changed my mind a lot. Yeah. You know, I mean, we used to do just like the big three, like barbell back squats, bench press, deadlift. But then I started to realize that for the growing athlete, we don't, we don't need to do all barbell work to get a good strength effect. We can do free weights. We can do front loaded squats for better core and back health. So I've changed a lot of the exercise selection from like several years ago. Um, I've also changed my mind on conditioning and making it more um, explosive. So like 12 to 15 seconds in length instead of like 60 seconds to two minutes, just because they get a lot of that at soccer practice and they need more of the explosive and speed work. So I've changed my conditioning. I've changed my speed training too. And that's because in the past few years, I've started to turn to the track guys on speed. Obviously, I mean, they work with the fastest people in the world, so I should listen to them. Um, And I realized that I, with speed training, I wasn't resting my athletes long enough 
Mm. in between sprints to get that speed and that central nervous system effect. Um, I also wasn't focused enough on sprint mechanics and really breaking down sprinting form. And that's something I've really leaned into in the past few years. And I'm trying to coach them as much as I can, like track athletes, so they can really raise the ceiling on their off the ball speed. Because in the game, it's like you don't have the ball at your feet that long it's only like three percent of the game so building that true absolute speed became really important and they weren't getting that at practice either people underestimate how how much um little you actually touch the the soccer ball in a 90 minute game it's crazy i think i think like the players that we think spent too much time on the ball they spend like maybe 70 seconds yeah, it's as a like whole. total, but yeah, yeah, accumulated. It's, yeah, it's crazy. Like no one touches the ball, yep. which is really interesting. Even uh, like center midfielders, I think they might be a minute and a half total for the yeah. game. Insane. Yeah, it's, it's it's super, crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I want to talk about that. So like speed training. Um, can we even can we give even some practical bits of advice? Um, to, you know, even you know, female athletes that do not have access to you or parents of athletes who do not have access to to you um like what are some things speed training wise that maybe you've learned from track athletes or that you've started implementing in your programs that you never got or that you never thought of including until you did so it's interesting that i just recently turned to these track people because when i grew up i actually had a track speed coach and I like learned all this stuff and I got insanely fast. <laughs> so I don't know where in, in that time period I was like going off and like getting away from that, but I'm back. Um, so the, the three key ones for speed. Back are, to the basics always, right? Yeah, back yeah. to the basics. Um, there's actually four key ones. So the first one is speed needs to be trained consistently. It's a very advanced skill. So it's like doing like a scissors move or learning how to shoot a soccer ball. You have to repeat that and get in the repetitions and really master that skill. And with speed training, you have to do it year round uh, the best you can. Um, Obviously in the off season, you're doing more speed days than the in season. It's just like one day just for like 10 minutes, super short. So you have to do it year round. And I just find it funny that parents think they can do a speed program for like a month's time and then their kid runs the fastest 40. It just, even my mom gets that doesn't make sense. And my mom's like a pianist. So, (laughs) but um, I just find it so funny. It's such a hard skill. Um, So consistency, number one, and then consistency with doing plyometrics. So making sure you're building power and fast contacts with your your foot with the ball of the foot so doing plyometrics jumping high jumping far and measuring those over time and then the second one is working on your sprint mechanics so how the arms are positioned having an upright posture striking the ground with the widest part of your foot and you can reinforce that through drills like marching and skipping and different variations on those and then the last one is making sure you sprint and you do it for over 20 meters distance as hard as you can linear because you run at your fastest when you're going linear um, and timing that. And that should be in less than five seconds time. Once you go over six seconds, you're not doing mm-hmm. a speed drill anymore. You get into more of your like a lactic conditioning work. So we want to keep it. Which five- is where 
most a lot of people probably find themselves they spend uh, time inadvertently in. trying to do speed work, but they probably find themselves in this more conditioning type work. Yes, and that's where the rest time comes into play. Yeah. So if you run like a sprint as hard as you can for less than five seconds, before you do that next sprint, you want to give your nervous system time to recover. Uh, and to get scientific, your your ATP uh, usually replenishes after like which couple our, minutes, which five is our minutes, energy. What you use for those explosive movements. Um, so it's key to rest. I usually rest five to seven minutes in between, and I think a lot of people are like, "Oh, well, you just like stand there." I'm like, "Yeah, you just stand there. Like <laughs> you don't need because to do." It's, it. it's tough for us to uh, conceptualize, you know, separating speed from conditioning, from mechanics, from mobility. Like we kind of want to do everything all together and get it over and done with and go home. And that's the problem. Like people want to chase two rabbits at once, but you yep. don't catch any. Yeah. So the it, like whatever drill people are setting up, whether it's for speed, agility or conditioning, it has to be separate and you have to ask, okay, well, what do I want to get out of this drill? What's the adaptation? And if it's speed, then those rest times need to be a lot longer. And then if it's conditioning, maybe you're doing just a 60 second rest or a 30 second rest and really like being intentional with how you design the drill. Even, you know, um, you you made me want to sprint more um you know even i threw i think i, I threw i said something to you yesterday where you know most people 90 i think it was like 92 plus percent of people after the age of 30 never sprint that was um, crazy stat yeah. <laughs> i was surprised yeah look I, I i don't know if it's true or not but um it does make sense to me like because who the hell sprints if they don't have to sprint um, you know, even me, like I'm, I'm very active. I run, but how often do I sprint? Very rarely. Um, so is it important though, like when working on speed, when sprinting to, to have that energy and ability to go all out in order to improve your speed? And, and if we don't, then I'm assuming we won't improve on speed. Athletes won't improve on their speed. And is it because of that that we have this myth maybe that you just cannot improve speed, that speed is genetic, that player is slow, the other player is fast, and that's how it goes? Yeah, so if you don't train extreme, then you don't get better. Um, so if you're running or sprinting sub-maximally, and not going max output, then you're never going to raise your top end speed. So with my athletes and even myself personally, what we're trying to do is raise our peak velocity. So the highest mile per hour number we can get. And in order to do that, we have to constantly be giving them that stimulus, sometimes a new stimulus. Recently, we've been running on blacktop instead of the grass because the grass is thick here it's a little it's going to slow you down even just a few milliseconds mm -hmm. so we'll venture over to the blacktop uh, hopefully this summer i'm trying to find a track because running on a track is the best stimulus you can give your body to continue to improve your speed mm. i would use something like that for more of my older girls who have been training a while and who kind of have reached a plateau and who need just a little bit extra. Um, so we're going to experiment with that. But 
uh, I think it's it's valuable to have that stimulus to get faster, not just for soccer players, but for adults. And like for me, it's the best brain exercise I can do because it's the fastest coordinated exercise the body does where all of your muscles are firing together and you're using the opposite arm and leg to run. So it's really beneficial for your brain and it feels great. (laughs) Especially if you're keeping your mechanics in check and doing it correctly. Yeah. Because you know, um, when you say to sprint all out like you do for 30 yards, 40 yards, um, my brain immediately goes to fragility of of the bodies and like that's when you see players get injured um is when they sprint all out you know in say in a game you're chasing someone or you're sprinting in order to get into the box and score a goal that's when you see players grab their hamstrings or their calf or especially men's players (laughs) yeah so is is it especially men's players yeah it's a yeah, there's this whole thing in men's soccer that they're not getting enough of that sprint exposure to prepare for those game moments. In trainings? Yeah. Um, so that's why, like, in-season speed has become, like, a really hot topic and mm. more clubs are starting to implement it with their guys just because the hamstring strain issue just became so big. And for the longest time, they thought that Nordics would solve the problem, the Nordic ham curl yep, yep, machine yep. or, um, you know, even like deadlifts. And they'll strengthen the hamstrings, but nothing fires the hamstrings more than a sprint. So everyone's rethinking the Nordics and just focusing on that, which is interesting. But it makes a lot of sense. So the injuries come when I haven't practiced this all-out sprint for a prolonged period of time whether it's, it could be days it could be weeks mm-hmm. and then when you do fire it off that's when you're is that when you're vulnerable yeah so it's when you don't take the time to prepare your tissues to tolerate load in a game so usually players have to work up that tolerance and if it's an off-season program then they might start with four sprints in the first week, then add an extra or two extra the following week and like slowly build it up. And ideally by the end of like an off season speed program, you want them to be running more sprints than they would reach in a game. So they're training at a higher level than the game. So let's say me, I haven't sprinted all out in a very long time. I'm embarrassed to say how long. but So if I wanted to start sprinting now, um, I'm assuming it will be wrong for me um, to step out on the track after we finish the podcast and warm up and then sprint all out. Um, like I would feel very um, vulnerable doing that. So should I work myself to an 80% sprint, being able to do a few 80% sprints, 90% sprints before going all out? You would be fine just because you have a a good training background. Um, But I wouldn't recommend a non-athlete to get out there and like just go. Um, You would be fine. But uh, I would just say starting with one or two sprints, but getting a good warm up. So that's what I'm trying to to ask. So so is it it better to start with a lower number of sprints, but to go all out rather than doing a bit more sprints, but going 80, 90%? Yeah, you can you can start with one or two going all out as long as you have like a good warm up that really gets your nervous system ready for the workout. So doing like your marches, your fast high knees and skips and jumps and then you can get into that sprint. But it wouldn't make sense to run like 15 sprints at the track today all out. 
So yeah. just starting small and then slowly progressing each week. And is that something that you, even with your athletes, you work on speed once a week, twice a week? Twice a week in the off season. And yeah. then once a week in season, if there aren't two games that week. I see. Um, yeah. But getting to that max all out sprint is a, a priority in oh, your yeah. training programs. Yeah. Great. Um, working with athletes on specifically strength development um also can we talk about that off season versus um in season and how often and what parts of the body like do you focus on um and you can if you're you know we can also include here maybe some mistakes that you've made in the past or that you've see, you see people make with with girls um that ma makes you maybe cringe and hope <laughs> that they would uh do a, a take maybe better educated um decisions with their athletes I think the in-season strength is like where people get confused because they think they have to just stop it all together because otherwise they're going to get too sore or their muscles are going to get too fatigued, but it's actually the opposite. So if you have a good in-season strength program, you're able to maintain, keep the tissues durable and less likely to suffer soreness and fatigue, but the sets and reps have to be super low volume so I like to keep it like four to six reps for each big movement um, and anywhere from two to three sets and we just hit each muscle group so we don't overdo it on the legs we'll just hit one quad one hamstring and then one back one chest and then maybe a core exercise and then there's mobility in there as well and some recovery and usually that's one to two times a week depending on the schedule it, it can change weekly because some girls have like two games on the weekends <laughs> which is insane yeah. <laughs> but yeah the, the in-season tr uh, strength training it should never make athletes more sore if it is that's extremely concerning and they need to look at if those rep schemes are way too high which is usually in the 10 to 15 rep range which is just stupid for oh. in-season weight being too high yeah weight load. being too yeah. high too yeah you know i've i've had athletes do like 80 to 90 percent load um but we were doing like two to three reps for something so it, it really depends on the set and rep scheme and athlete young athletes you know also i think uh, kind of a hot topic of you know what age should you be stepping in the gym um so in, yeah what, what, what do you think what do you recommend for girls, I usually say age 11 or 12, usually like that middle school is, is a good time to start. Uh, 11 may seem young for some people, but a lot of 11-year-old girls are maturing very early. So their body's actually like a 13-year-old. <laughs> so they're able to start learning these movements and, and loading them too. But yeah, so even some loading is okay some, at that young age? Yeah, it is. But they have to prove over several weeks that, okay, I can control this with just body weight. And then, okay, maybe now we'll hold like a, a 10-pound plate in a goblet squat. So it's okay, but there has to be a careful progression in place. And do you emphasize on technique of performing these drills with athletes? Because I've, I've seen a lot of people... You know, when you go to the gym and you just see people doing things <laughs> wrong and it's almost painful to watch, um, there's that. And then there's also, I've seen athletes get injured in the gym. 
mm-hmm. uh, which is you know it's so counterproductive right because we're in the gym to get strong to maintain our health um, and strength and then you, if you get injured if you're a soccer player and you get injured in the gym like what are we doing here technique is huge for for the middle schoolers and I just like to reinforce body weight even if we hang out there for two months, which has happened before, that's totally fine. Um, they have to be able to get that down first before we add load. But, you know, it could be different for some athletes where the load actually helps them do it better. So it might look different, um, you know, across female athletes. I've had one girl who couldn't do a bodyweight squat, but then when we added a kettlebell, it was perfect. So mm. could be highly individual too. Yeah, um, but so, but if a girl is training, or even you know, even a boy, teenager, they're in the gym, they're following a program. Should like, should they be, should they be feeling pain? And I'm not talking about muscle soreness, um, because you know, I think a lot of people go to the gym, have back pains, maybe shoulder pains, knee pains from doing all these uh, loaded activities, exercises. Um, and they keep showing up and doing the same thing in the same way and just kind of get used to feeling these pains. Um, is that something that you um, experienced with your athletes or hit, f- get feedback from from your athletes um, in terms of different pains? And like, if someone does feel pain in certain areas of the body, how do you manage that? So we don't do any movement that causes pain um, or chronic soreness. So if that's happening, then we just change what we're doing. Um, With like knee pain, that's a common one with girls. If they're feeling any knee pain on like a squat or a lunge, we might regress that down to, okay, we're going to do a lunge hold so that the knee joint's not flexing. It's just the muscle, it's still contracting, but the knee's not moving. And usually they do well with that. Um, But yeah, we don't do anything that involves pain or or soreness and the gym's supposed to make you feel good it's supposed to enhance performance but that's not to say lifting shouldn't be hard I mean there's parts in the program where you're not going to feel pain but it's going to feel like a grind to get the last few reps because you're lifting more load or you're doing a pull-up without a band. Uh, I had a girl last week who had to do two pull-ups with no assistance, and she said the second rep was really hard, um, but it didn't make her like sore or in pain. It was just challenging, which it should be at times, because otherwise we're not progressing. What are your, What is your favorite exercise? To do yourself. Pull-ups. <laughs> pull-ups, is it yeah. your favorite? pull-up. And crawl, bear crawling, I think. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so is that the reason you use two of those to, um, out of the three <laughs> ass- strength assessment um, exercises that you perform with your athletes? No. <laughs> no, I mean, I just so happen to like those ones. Yeah. Uh, I love pull-ups just because they're, I mean, they're so hard to get and work up to. And I used to not be able to do one. And uh, when I was working with my strength coach in college, I got my first pull-up for the first time. And it made me realize, I was like, wow, the, the weight room is so challenging, but you can definitely overcome a lot. And you just have to work at it. And that's when it sunk in for me. I was like, wow, this is... This is really powerful, and I felt really accomplished. And no equipment, 
necessary to perform and put up besides and i can get three now um the max i got was seven without assistance right now i can do three but they're like strict like arm straight like no cheating like strict (laughs) and do you do you do a lot of um, like iso holds um like one of your strength assessment uh, exercises Um, and and do you incorporate those into your programming different types of pull-up variation holds hangs Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the accessory movements I'll use. I'll do a lot of uh, TRX rows, dumbbell rows, and progress that and really build my strength so that it makes that pull up easier. Um, sometimes like paused variations too, or uh, eccentric pull ups as well. So, so, and the, so the three strength assessment exercises that you use, um, if there's more, please throw them in. But number one is the bear crawl mm-hmm. uh, that we, you do. Number two is the, is the uh, split lunge or the, the lunge hold. The lunge hold. The lunge yeah. hold. And the third one is the pull-up hold. Mm-hmm. Um, so why those three? And also, if you do, if you uh, if you don't mind explaining them, um, and what numbers you're looking for, what numbers athletes should be looking for at you know rough age groups. The pull up hold, so it's upper body strength, and a lot of girls would be like, "Well, why the heck do I need this?" Yep. <laughs> Especially soccer players, and upper body strength actually impacts our lower body ability. So a pull up hold is. It is back strength, but it's also core stability as well. And it helps with our posture. It helps with our ability to control deceleration and change of direction movements. So we have to have a strong upper and trunk area to have good lower body mechanics. So that's why we do that one. Um, The minimum I want girls to get on that is a 30 second hold. Uh, But most that come in for the first time that I've never trained can't even hit 10 seconds. So that's how lacking everyone is in upper body strength. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, they just I mean, never, uh, that's why they're there. Yeah, like, exactly. yeah. <laughs> but, but the beautiful thing about all these different things is like, and if you do show up and like, you will see the progress. Yep. And I, I've had girls start at that under 10 seconds and they're over a minute. So it's like, Amazing. look, like, you have this starting point and it's not like wrong. It just is what it is. And now we know where we need to go and the path to get there. So it's just funny because before we do that test, they all are like, I have no upper body strength. And they just like tell me that before because they know it's going to be bad. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't care. Like just do the test. (laughs) So it's funny. And then the, the bear crawl is more of the, core strength test but it's also a total body movement because they're on their hands and their feet so it's like shoulders triceps a little bit of quads and are they crawling back and forth non like all directions and how do they um do you guide them or is it like a few yards forwards a few yards left a few yards right how do they know where to go they just go any direction they want Mm. so they're um, as long as they're moving as long as they're moving and as so they put a a cone on their back 
because the cone gives them feedback. Okay, I need to keep my core stable. My hips shouldn't be like shifting and wobbling. Um, because once, if the core is not stable, the cone will the fall cone off. will fall off. Yeah, that's and, uh, when there's a breakdown. Um, so for that test, most girls, I'd say we want to get thirty to sixty seconds, ideally. But um, some tap out at that ten seconds too, and you know the cone either falls off. Or I tell them the test ends if you just tap out and you're just so like sore and can't handle it. Um, Cause towards the end of the test, like your quads are on fire yeah. and it's in your shoulders. So, you know, they can tap out when they want, but it's just crazy seeing that lack of like true core strength because a lot of them feel, Oh, well we should have, we should just be doing sit ups and crunches. And it's like, well, where in sports are we like flexing like that? Yeah. Our our core is actually stable. Our our posture is controlled. We have a good center of mass. So sit-ups aren't your best bet for sport performance or injury reduction. So that's what I try to explain to them with the crawling because with the crawling they're like, "Oh, I don't feel my abs." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Well, it's it's a total body exercise, but core stability isn't just abs. Yep. It's your low back too and it's also your hips (laughs) so i think that's the the one thing that i've just been trying to teach on that front it's it's super interesting absolutely yeah um and then we have the the lunge the lunge yeah the lunge so mckenna yesterday (laughs) um she she holds the record she's at 12 minutes each leg and she she's one of my 16 year old soccer players and the lunge is just holding a lunge position and we do both legs, so just pick what whichever leg you want to go forward first and hold it as long as you can until you tap out or you feel like your quad's on fire. Um, we also end the test if they're in that lunge hold and their trunk starts to, like, wobble or they, like, fall or, like, hunch over, we, we stop there. Because it's it's not just a quad endurance test, it's also a trunk stability and single leg stability test. So those are some of the things we're looking for. 60 to 90 seconds is good for that one. And what's the importance of performing these tests? Um, how often do you perform them? And should athletes be doing this themselves or with their parents, you know, whoever's guiding them? They should do them several times a year. Uh, I like to evaluate at the start of each season. So at minimum four times a year to, to reassess and get a couple months of training and then reassess it again. So yep. four times a year, like every quarter is good. Uh, we're about to retest going into the summer off season. And then after three months, we'll retest again. So I, I recommend girls get those numbers, but like give time in between to like train and load and, and get better at improving those tests. And you can absolutely do it with your parents. Yeah. I, I love when parents get involved, especially with the middle schoolers and just really set the example for working out and being active. And I, I truly believe that with this stuff, the whole family needs to be on board with it and yeah. yeah, you can't really change a kid like if they're going to their performance coach two hours a week, but then when they get home, the environment's not ideal. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's like it, sedentary, and it's a tough ask. <laughs> tough ask, uh, I guess, for a family as well to you know be committed towards maybe you know if a family has maybe multiple kids. Um, 
to well, meet. I know tons of families that make it work. No, which is amazing. So, so it's like yeah, what so, it begs the question: Why don't some do it? Mm. So, <laughs> but so what what would you be your recommendation um, for you know the ideal parent guidance? Because there's a lot of negativity involved when parents get involved with their kids playing. You know, or every country, every city I travel to, every state I travel to. Everyone likes claiming that their parents are the craziest when it comes to um, to um, you know manage or guiding their athletes, whatever sport it is. Parents are insane, you know. Even when I was a kid, um, even now when I see parents, really everywhere, parents just really don't know how to behave in these sporting events. Um, maybe it's uh, it could be a minority, like a loud minority of parents. Um, <laughs> But and I'm sure you see lots of beautiful examples, like the father we, I met yesterday. Seemed mm. like I'm assuming he's a great, you know, um, guide to his daughter and does great. Um, so you see the positives and the negatives when parents get involved. Um, what would be some advice for parents that are not sure exactly how to um, how to you know how to be useful? This is a hard one for me, and I, like, tread lightly here because I'm not a parent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, like, who am I to give advice on how to parent? But I can speak from, like, how my parents did it, and the key was it was a lot of leading by example and learned behaviors. Uh, my mom and dad were super active. They still are. They're retired and they're biking like 50 miles a weekend, like going hiking out West. So it, they've always been a great example. And I think that's the most powerful thing parents can do because be, be the an example is be an example. Mm -hmm. And even with nutrition, like my mom always got me involved in cooking with her and knowing what I was putting in my meals. And I think a lot of the, the home cook family dinners are going away just because everyone's so busy. But if we can bring that back, that would be nice and get the kids involved and make it a whole family thing and make it about the environment we're putting kids in and I yeah I just think that environment's so key and it's so impactful for youth and I get questions about nutrition a lot with parents and from parents yeah and they ask me to help their kids nutrition but at the same time they go home to a pantry that is like processed foods and sugar and it's like well how much can I help if if they're going to that environment. So mm -hmm. it's a team effort from the parents and the coaches to, to help the kid because a 10 year old doesn't know any better. Like they don't, they don't know like how to eat or what's appropriate. So we have to guide them through it and we can't just put that all on the coach. It has to be all of us doing it. So that's my best advice for parents. And then I think with like my dad, he was really good at not like getting too involved in micromanaging. He yep. was always kind of the parent at the corner flag away from the other parents because he didn't want to deal with all the crap. <laughs> and yep. he was just standing there like quietly. Yeah, good job. Like just cheering me on. So should, should that you think how the uh, mom and dad should behave on game day? 
during the training sessions? I liked it that way. Like my mom was like a cheerleader. She was always just positive. She always was like, good job. Like she never like yelled or like coached from the sidelines. And my dad was just like silent. And I think that really helped me because it allowed me to focus on the game. And I've seen parents who would like coach and like narrate every single play from the sidelines and the kids constantly looking at the parent for approval or, oh my gosh, I made a mistake. Let me look at my mom or my dad. And it distracts the kids so much. And I know the parents think they're like helping, but it's, it's hurting the kid in the end. So, I mean, it might sound obvious, but would you recommend to, like, when you speak to parents, if you, let's say, maybe notice a parent is a bit too uh, coachy with their, with, with, the, with the athlete, with their son or daughter, um, would you recommend for that parent to like, take a step back and not get involved in the minute details of playing the game? How the, how, the, how the player runs, what directions they run, how they pass the ball, how they cross the ball, when do they shoot? Because you also have these parents you know, want their kid to have the glory. Like You should shoot more, you should score more goals, you should be the one that goes up to corners. Um, or, would you, or would you tell that parent, you know? Because I think that parent, this what we're painting here, is a lot of parents, and I think a lot of kids, athletes, are affected by this terribly. They'd always prefer their parent not show up to the game. I think it wouldn't hurt to experiment with that and be silent and see how the kid does for a month. And I I think they'll find that the kid will be less distracted and less afraid to make mistakes and afraid of what dad or mom are going to say in the car ride home and... Yeah, I think stepping back can can be good and and letting the coach do the job and, you know, help the kid overcome those mistakes helps too. Were you ever afraid of making mistakes on the field? Not as I got older. Um, I also was a a forward. So if I made a mistake, it didn't really matter (laughs) because they had to get all the way up the field to our goal. So, yeah, not really was afraid of making mistakes. Did you, are you one of the players that remembers every single goal they've scored, every single pitch they played on? Not every single goal. I wish. (laughs) Do you know how many goals you've scored? And you say, let's break it down. Do you know know how many goals you scored in college? I think it was like 52. Do you know how many goals you scored in all of your youth career? For my high school team, and it's just high school, not club, I think it was like 40, 45 or something. I don't remember. Do you remember your most beautiful goal of all time? Um, the one that sticks out is I, I think it was senior at Hopkins. I scored from like 40 yards out. On purpose? Yeah. <laughs> so how did that come I about? was aiming for the goal. Yeah. Can, you, can you describe it to me? Uh, I mean, it was just like a left-footed shot from 40 yards out. Like, I I just saw an opening. I was like, all right, I'm going to aim for it. And it went into the right corner, so. Are you a lefty? Yeah. Nice. Were, yeah. You, were you good with both uh, with both feet? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I that, think my right was more accurate, but my left was more powerful. Mm. So That's interesting, because I'm, I'm a righty, um, and I was never, what's the word for you use for left and righties? Um, the ones that can ambidextrous. Use. Ambidextrous. Yeah. <laughs> um, I always felt that my right was way more competent, but my left was 
had more creativity, more maybe touch to it. Oh, that's interesting. I could yeah. spin the ball be- better with my left. I had like, um, you know, maybe it had more more room to express itself, and it wasn't as rigid and trained maybe as my right leg. That's what I always felt. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But is that something you emphasize? Also, the importance of with your players maybe of thinking about always using both feet just to have that level of competency um, especially like girls aiming to college or further in their careers um, you kind of need it as a prerequisite nowadays both feet for everything shooting every move that you know you have to work on it both feet so that you're not predictable and with skill work i i tell them you have to do it on your own it's, your skills aren't going to get better for you. Mm. And a lot of girls struggle to practice skills on their own. They told me it's boring. And I'm like, well, do you want to get better? <laughs> yeah. Um, can you make it fun? Can you turn on some music while you do it? Can you do it with a friend? Can you call like a neighbor? But it, it's just different now. Not everyone wants to get out there and not everyone has that passion. But some girls have that passion and they do it. Yeah. But um I think they have to come to it themselves too, a little bit. Can't nag. Here's a um, a fun one to talk about: the menstrual cycle, yeah. periods, periods. Um, again, another thing that I haven't haven't experienced yet. Um, but you know, there's a lot of talk over athletes and periods. You've even seen you know online campaigns of uh, female athletes um, advocating for different. Um, you know, different elements of what falls under the menstrual cycle and the female athletes, how it affects them, what, how they should act, should they talk about it, should they be training? Where, where does that come in? How do you guide your athletes? How did you guide yourself um, during this? And what is, as far as we know today, what is the best way for female athletes to act um, during their period time of the month? As far as the research says, we don't know enough to manipulate training or nutrition around it. So some some studies will say that girls' performance or injury risk changes during certain phases. Um, some injuries might be higher during the menstrual phase, but some studies say it's the luteal phase the last phase of the cycle so we just we just don't know so I don't guide my girls on menstrual cycle stuff because I just don't know enough to give them all a universal solution so across each female athlete they're going to have different experiences with their own hormones some girls might feel different in one phase than another girl might or even an individual girl might experience something in a phase and then the next month it's completely different. So we just stick to the basics. We just stick to what we've always been doing and what we've known and where there's more research behind and it's consistent performance training. Every girl needs to strength train non-negotiable to mitigate injury risk and then the other piece is nutrition. They have to be properly fueled to have energy to play and to recover at their best. So we're not changing anything in our training. So, so if we're consistent with these, you know, with the, the strength training, with nutrition, uh, with performance training, 
then a girl shouldn't be held back. Right. You're saying by by experiencing, you know, this new um, hormonal, hormonal change in the body. Yep. So it's interesting. Um, for ACL injuries, the research says that we can reduce ACL injuries by over 60% by just consistently strength training year-round. So, but not everyone's nailing that down. So unless you nail that down first, then maybe I'll have a discussion about the menstrual cycle, right? Mm. <laughs> um, so it, it's just it's just funny. I think everyone's trying to get to the the nuances before we get to like the big things. And as far as hormonal balance and feeling better during certain phases of the cycle, like PMS or during your menstruation phase, you should be making sure you're fueling your body and getting the vitamins and minerals and anti-inflammatory foods so you can feel your best during that time. Your hormones won't respond and reach an equilibrium unless your nutrition and nourishment is consistent year-round. You need to be healthy year-round. And I find with the menstrual cycle, a lot of people are being really reactive with it. Like they'll get PMS and then they're like, oh my gosh, I need to like up omega-3s this week. And I'm like, I take omega-3s every day. And when this comes, it's not as amplified as it could be. Mm-hmm. because hormones respond to consistency and what you're putting into your body. Yeah. And we have to nail those down first before we, we get into all the specifics. The specifics are distracting. It's like too much science being bad science. Yeah. Um, if a girl is, you know, experiencing pains, you know, on certain days uh, throughout the month from her period, for example. But is should then be a time to take even a day off um, or a couple of days off? Or again, should they almost, you know, push through it, quote unquote, or learn to deal with it in order not to be limited by it? Well, it'd be hard to um, say if this worst day happens on a Saturday and you're in the state championship. That, yeah, that would be a problem. You're right. Would we field a team? So we have to front end it and prepare for that. So the biggest key is staying hydrated, having enough protein, 20 to 30 grams a meal. It helps with your, your mood regulation and make sure that you don't have like all these crazy mood swings, um, anti-inflammatory foods, uh, magnesium helps with like cramping and bloating. So being able to stay consistent with getting all of that, um, leading up to that is really going to help. Um, we can't just take a day off because who knows what day that's going to fall on, or maybe it's a Tuesday practice before the NCAA tournament and you're in the starting lineup and you have to work with your team on what you're going to do in that game. So it's really hard to say. So we have to teach our female athletes proper, consistent nutrition. And then as far as training, we don't want to cut back on what we're doing sets and reps wise. So with a training program to gain strength, we have to have a consistent progression over time to, to get that adaptation. So if we're doing a set of 
10 to 15 reps week one, and then a set of 10 to 12 reps week two, and then eight to 10 week three. And that week three is when they feel off and they're like, oh, well, I'm just not going to like train this week. Well, we, we miss a critical period where we actually ended up upping the weight and we can't take that week off because that falling week, we're going to have to regress back again because we can't have these like constant, like spikes and dips in load and set and rep schemes because in the end that's actually going to cause more issue more injury not enough progression and the female case it's just it's going to be a monthly thing yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, unless you're you're prepared and you're getting your nourishment sleep is a big one Um, sleep really helps with your your mood and your muscle recovery and muscle recovery tends to go like down during certain phases, which is why we should still be getting enough protein. Yeah. Yeah. ACLs you touched on. Um, are girls more likely to tear their ACLs, ACLs at younger ages? or And is it just, um, is it specific to ACLs or just knee injuries as a whole? What we, do we know? Yeah. Yeah. We, we used to think it was... Uh, the female anatomy was the the dominating factor. And yes, some girls will have a wider hip structure and an increased rotational torque on the knee because of that and for its ability to to twist more than males. But you also have some men with wide hip structures too. So now the research is saying more than the female factor, it's just a lack of good performance training and proper nutrition and recovery. Mm. But so, okay. So, but if, um, are people, men and women with wider hip structures, are they more likely, are they more prone to injuring their knees than ones with uh, less wide hip structures? Yes, because it, it increases how the, the knee twists, so the amount of force going on the knee um, in relation to, like, the, the femur and the tibia. But with those people, it's like you're not doomed. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, like, you do can't... I, do I have a wide hip structure, by the way? I mean, you might. <laughs> yeah, but is it not, not something you can tell just by uh, seeing someone's... Uh... Um, that's something I leave to the scientists yeah. mm. to measure. There's certain measurements they do. Um, but so anatomy, so there's two factors in, in all of this controllable factors and uncontrollable factors. Uncontrollable is your anatomy. Yep. So if you are someone with wide hips and you're at a higher risk, then what can you do about it? Are you going to get like a painful surgery to like change your hip structure? Unlikely. Yeah. See, that's not yeah. realistic. So that's going to bring you to, okay, what can I control? I don't want to be a victim to how I was born. And I think a lot of female athletes are being told, oh, well, you're a female, you're more susceptible, you're a victim. It's like, no, let's like change. Let's come over here. Let's like come over to what we can control. And let's like truly empower female athletes. You know, we, we talk about female empowerment all the time, but if we really want to empower them, we want to focus on, oh, well, it's just female anatomy or it's the menstrual cycle. No, like we need to strength train, eat well, sleep. That's it. Back to basics. It, it comes back to the same thing we've been talking about for, I don't know, 
so many decades. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, um, um, yeah, it's, it's um, that's why I get frustrated. Yeah. You know, it's I constantly am fighting it. I get asked about menstrual cycles all the time, and I'm like, you aren't even doing the basics. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to ask you about your time in Brazil that you mentioned. What led you uh, to Brazil? I graduated college and I didn't have a job. Imagine that. I graduated Johns Hopkins. <laughs> didn't have a job. Um, what, but did, what did you study, by the way? Economics. College? Yeah, economics in undergrad and then exercise science in graduate school. Also John Hopkins uh, grad school? No, Maryland. Okay. Yeah. University of Maryland. Yeah. So I... Uh, I wanted to get into coaching. I um, didn't want to go on Wall Street or any of that, <laughs> even though I had an econ degree. But I decided to go to Brazil. I really wanted to volunteer coach. So I ended up going through a volunteer program. I think it was called IBHQ, where you get assigned a coaching job in a favela. And then you like live in kind of like an Airbnb with like other volunteers, which was really fun. And yeah, I did that for a year. And when I got back from that, I realized that I wanted to go full into coaching because I worked with kids down there who were, I think they were like 12 to 15 year olds. And that's when I was like, oh, I really, I really like this age group. This is really fun. So I came back and then that's when I got into my exercise science program and wanted to get into more of the performance world since there was a need for that. And in Brazil, so you spent your whole year there uh, like mm -hmm. as a coach. Yeah. Um, where in Brazil were you? Rio de Janeiro. Um, was it you know, scary in a way, um, <laughs> like living where you were in the favela? So I've lived in Baltimore City, and Baltimore <laughs> City is scarier. <laughs> um, yeah. The, the, the Wire reference. Yeah, um, that that's exactly it. So yeah. it's like you go to Brazil and you're like, oh, this is like fine. <laughs> but uh, was it, um, did you um, get the romance, the beauty of it when it comes to soccer, you know, because um, everyone, I think it's a consensus, maybe only the British won't agree. Um, but when you think of soccer, you think about the kids playing in the mm -hmm. favela. That, so that was where my project was. It was in the favela. So my first day going there was actually kind of scary because I had to do like a two-hour bus route on the Rio de Janeiro bus system. It was so confusing. Like, So I was like, I hope they're sending me to the right place. My cell phone wasn't working. I didn't have Wi-Fi. So that was kind of kind of odd but um I get to the favela and it's like super interesting it's like really run down like there's like no roofs on houses and it's it's just like really crazy and there's like concrete like soccer fields or courts I guess yeah but then there's like police officers everywhere with like big guns because it, there's like a huge drug problem in these neighborhoods yeah so they're just like out patrolling so it's a little bit scary and you like stick out like a sore thumb as like an american woman yeah going to a soccer job did, did, yeah <laughs> did you um when you look these kids in the eyes um like did you see a different appreciation oh, for yeah. the game yeah they they loved it like i just laugh because there it's like they're doing bicycle kicks and slide tackles on concrete and it just like doesn't phase them yeah and it's like 
you come here and like little Johnny like scrapes his <laughs> knee and it's like the world ends. <laughs> Not every kid. There's some really tough kids here and I've worked with them before, but yeah. Brazil, it was different. And did you see uh, females playing there on the streets too? Actually, no. My project was all boys and it, mm. it was mainly boys, which was interesting. But yeah. the women's national team is really good yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. And my friend's their strength coach. Well, she's Brazilian, so, um, but yeah, it was just it was just boys. Yeah, and then you so you're happy you did that uh, one year in Brazil. Yeah, and do you think that that's what like made you make the decision to start your business, start your brand, and start working with um, with athletes? That was the fire that. Yeah. Yeah, that started it. Um, and I think just um, I was originally doing like skills training sessions, and. During that time, I was, like, seeing a lot of injuries from overuse and specialization, and that's when I left the skills world and was like, oh, I think I'm adding to the problem, and I wanted to solve the problem and really encourage soccer players to start getting in the gym, especially girls. So that's also why I made the switch. But Brazil definitely helped. What is, um, before we wrap up, uh, what is maybe a message that you would send um, to maybe 14-year-old Erica um, that's, that's listening, um, you know, that will help them maybe aim better um, or do better, or guide themselves better on whatever journey they're at, whether it's to go and play in college or to be a professional or to go to Wall Street when they graduate? Um, I don't know what I would tell my younger self. Like, I think like, don't sweat the small stuff. Like, especially in your sports career, you're going to make mistakes and have so many challenges and you just have to expect it and be ready for it. And that's what I would tell girls is just prepare the best you can do what you can control. Um, realize that challenges are going to happen, but they actually make your your sports career more meaningful. And I look back and I'm like, you know, I think if everything had been so easy, like the road to getting to college, if that was a cakewalk for me, I don't think I would have felt fulfilled getting to that point. I, I think meaning comes from the the challenge along the way and not just like reaching that goal so quickly. And I think a lot of people are focused on that outcome. And they're not enjoying everything in between. Yeah. Working with you has been great. Uh, talking to you now has been great too. I, yeah, this is I, fun. <laughs> I, yeah, I love the work that you do. Um, and it's fun. It's fun to be, you know, in a training environment and seeing young athletes who, who really care, uh, who are maybe pursuing a journey, a dream of theirs. Um, I find that super inspiring and I love seeing, you know, uh, even like the girl we saw yesterday in McKenna, mm -hmm. how ex excited she is, how serious she looks. Um, and obviously someone who takes, you know, whatever she does seriously. Um, She's great. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and, uh, so, um, so I hope, you know, I hope, um, I hope parents can do better guiding their, their athletes. I hope coaches, which I think play a major, 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 maybe the most important part, um, do better guiding their their athletes um and i also hope that um i hope that the yeah that what you're spreading like, you know um the message that you're spreading really touches people because i think if young athletes are you know 
are stronger, uh, are more focused, uh, you know, work on confidence. Um, I think they, for the long run, they will do they'll do amazing things. And if they if they just focused on the negativity, if the parents mad, if the coaches mad, if they're hard on themselves, if they're afraid to make mistakes, then whatever that journey is, it's not going anywhere. Um, so please tell people where I know you you have a uh, a published book um you have a website you have a training center you have a, a social media pages so please tell people where they can find you um and then we'll wrap this up This was fun yeah. I I like just having these conversations and it's yeah it's just nice to discuss the journey of soccer and sport performance and yeah this was this was really fun For me too yeah Yeah um, so everyone can find me at ericasuter.com. And then from there you can find my book, but it is only on Amazon in uh, Kindle and on paperback. And it's called The Strong Female Athlete. Erica, thank you very much. Thank you so much.